Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. Welcome to this episode of Going Deep. And we're here with um, someone we both deeply admire, somebody who we have a history with that we're grateful for, and that is Bomani Jones. We are very grateful to have Bomani here with us today to discuss a lot of things, but we hope to go deep, especially just on the question of cultural change and what's going on right now in our society. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) John, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about Bomani? And then I know they want to hear from him too. Our paths crossed when I was coaching at North Carolina and Bomani was a voice on what seemed like every radio show in Raleigh, Durham, (laughs) Chapel Hill, and that whole triangle. And it was actually you, Marcia, that introduced me to Bomani at Uh, I think you were both panelists at North Carolina Central University talking Mm -hmm. about, well, many of the issues that we're going to be talking about now. And then as we both moved on from Chapel Hill, uh, we've certainly followed Bomani from ESPN's Outside the Lines, Around the Horn, Highly Questionable, (laughs) and The Right Time, The Right Time with Bomani Jones. And just on August 27th, in an issue of Vanity Fair, uh, which was guest edited by Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Bomani wrote an amazing piece called College Football Players Are Unpaid Stars on the Field and Have No Power Off of It, which certainly, which certainly uh, got my mind percolating. Yeah. So, Bomani, tell, just tell our listeners a little bit about your, your journey and how you're kind of moving about the world these days um, as a sports voice, but more than a sports voice, really. Yeah, I'll try to do the short version of it. Um, I actually have, like, never taken a journalism class of any sort um, in my life. I got a undergr- uh, my bachelor's degree was in economics, and I got a master's degree from um, – the undergraduate was at Clark Atlanta University. I got a master's degree at Claremont Graduate University after that as an interdisciplinary politics, economics, and business degree. And then I uh, moved to Chapel Hill. I moved to Durham, but I was going to school in Chapel Hill, um, working on a Ph.D. in economics. And that was not necessarily the best decision for me or economics. Um, you know, I got a lot out of it, but that was not the path that I needed to be going on. And that was, we'll call it a mutual agreement um, on that fact. But it happened that while I was there um, in my second year, I got there the year Roy Williams got there. And so that meant that the second year was the year of the national championship. And so I was in proximity and had developed at that time some relationships with ESPN. And so that kind of began a sports writing um, run of my life. I had written about music and culture and stuff like that for years prior, but that is what got me into sports and really kind of got me in the door with ESPN. And I wrote for ESPN.com for a couple of years. Um, And then after that, I began doing radio um, in the triangle. I did radio for about about two years. Um, Went and did a radio show on Sirius after that for a company called The Score that was based out of Canada. And that was when I kind of started doing ESPN television 
appearances and kind of got my feet on the ground there and started doing more and more of that. And in 2013, I began to host a television show called Highly Questionable with uh, Dan Levitard. And I did that for four years and uh, started doing a radio show called The Right Time um, around the same time. And then I uh, did a television show called High Noon from 2018 to 2020. And now I'm doing The Right Time uh, as a podcast. And what I figured out, because I had not taken a journalism class before in my life, I had to work with what I had. You know, like I could not replicate the work that my colleagues were doing because I didn't have the skills that they had. I didn't have the training that they had. What I did have, though, is and this is no slight to my colleagues, but the time that I was spending on the economics and politics stuff is the time that they were spending like at games and, you know, honing their craft and the 24 hours in a day. Right. So they could approach sports more directly on a nuts and bolts angle. What I had was the ability to kind of put things together in a larger, you know, social worldly sense. And it happened that this is happening as the Internet, as a media space is expanding. And the, and the Internet really opened up the space for people to talk about more things around whatever a main subject happened to be. Because there was so much stuff that was then available that was like, OK, we've got these people that start the conversation. Now, who are the people that advance it? And I figured out that my space is going to be advancing it. And then from there, you know, you get lucky that one good thing about being on TV or being on the radio is now you get the nuts and bolts stuff because people come tell you rather than you having to go find it. Right. right. <laughs> but that was that was always the thing for me was that I knew I had to lean in on what I knew and lean in on what I thought that I was good at. And I also rolled the dice on the idea that there was an audience demand for those things. And I to this day believe that there is. Well, thank you for that, because that's that is so much who how I experience you as a sports voice is somebody who brings a critical analysis, somebody who brings um, a deeper commentary to what how sports um, embodies these bigger questions, these these deeper questions. I wonder if you could say a little bit before we move on to some more specifics, just in terms of your understanding of your role, one of the things I'm really impressed with um, always with you is just your kind of fearless engagement with people. Because a lot of times people in the sports world are like, that's stupid. You know, they're just, they're, they're not coming back with like, well, actually Keynesian economic, theory <laughs> says, you know, right. <laughs> and you're, you're willing to, you just have a certain style about the way you engage people on Twitter or other social media media platforms that doesn't let them off the hook, kind of doesn't let them just say, well, that's dumb. You know, you really, you really continue to kind of bring bigger questions unapologetically. I just wonder if that's something you've grown into or if it was intentional. How comfortable is that role for you? Um, it's, the, the comfortability of it kind of waxes and wanes like to a degree. I don't have the patience for it that I used to, right? Like 10 years ago, I think I had a lot more energy um, toward a lot of those things, but I do believe, and I think it's important. Um, I don't think, oh, especially like with matters of race, so much of these, so many of these things are conditioned onto people and then it kind of comes down on them that I don't even think that they honestly give that much thought to the things that they're saying. You know, like, I don't even think they give, like, a lot of them give that much thought and consideration to the things that they believe, right? They, they find something that feels right for whatever reason, and then they ride it out, and then once that gets challenged, it's like their feelings come back, and then they, you know, and then it comes to me, right? 
Now, it always also becomes interesting because it comes to me and the default assumption that people have, you know, when somebody says something they disagree with is that that other person is stupid. And if we may be frank, they know that ain't me, right? So, like, you, you, you try that. You want to know, once that's your angle, I'm like, okay, well, let's keep going here. Show me that I'm stupid. Like, because you might be right. You know, you go ahead and explain this to me how it is that I'm stupid. And I'll, some of that I actually think was honed when I was doing radio and you would take calls. Because people had a very particular level of audacity with what they thought they could and could not say to me. But I'm not a person who's going to get offended by this idea. Like, I recognize that for a lot of these people, I am not a person. I am an avatar onto which they project, you know, all kinds of things. And so they call me and talk crazy, and I just talk it out with you. I just ask you a couple more questions. And then once that happens, all of a sudden people get like, you know, when you are acting a fool and the other person is not, it makes you in the moment stop and reassess what exactly it is that you're doing. And when you do that on radio, you, you know, it's a very intimate relationship on radio. Like they hear you for hours, day after day after day. And after a point, they look up and they're like, you know what, I actually like that guy. How'd that happen? You know? <laughs> I love that, Bomani. I really affirm yeah. that about you. It's a, it's it changes the world to interact with people that way. I, I agree with you that radio is an incredibly intimate form of media. It really is, perhaps the most. You get it in your car, you're by yourself. I wonder though, when you were doing radio, how much as well in the Chapel Hill area did the issues that were going on in terms of the academic scandal at North Carolina and all of that kind of propel you in this business right as you were kind of getting started. You were you were at the right place at the right time in some degree for, well, yeah. looking at uh, uh, the NCAA from a lot of different angles. Yeah, well, you know, and all that stuff happening at UNC was always like very particular because my radio show ended, the local radio show ended right before it all blew up, right? Like it ended in 2009 and then 2010 was the year that the season opener was like, we don't even know who's going to be playing in this game. One of the most amazing football games I've ever seen in total context. It was a little scary. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you, thought, you thought you were nervous. Yeah. We had to play LSU when we didn't have 14 starters. I was nervous. And almost won. Like I say, that is one of the most amazing games that I have ever seen, you know, for that very reason. But it, it was right around, you know, the time as things were starting for me. And what made it unique about North Carolina was that that was a school that believed in the NCAA. Like, as a, going into it as a notion, they believed in all the narrative stuff that's around college sports. And then all of a sudden this madness has fallen right at their feet and they didn't know what to do. And they'd always been scared of big time football because they were afraid something like this might happen, but they never dreamed that the something like this would be this. And then it uncovered this whole bigger giant thing that was way bigger than the football program that everybody could then say, well, the football players are taking these classes ignoring the fact that the reason that they didn't suffer any penalties is because it wasn't an extra benefit because everybody was taking those classes. Like the word had gotten out. Everybody was like, yo, I know how to get, a, I know how to get me a quick grade without having to do anything. And so I got to see firsthand what happens when people begin to scrutinize what the model of amateurism is and everything around the NCAA, when they start in one place and then all of a sudden slowly like, Oh my goodness, what's going on here? You mean to tell me that this is, Oh no, there's no way that this is, Oh my God, I can't believe that this is what it is. And the people like me were like, I've been trying to tell you this for years and years and years. And you, and you did not hear it 
at the time. And so what helped me in being around is also my parents are college professors. So I've got like a, you know, been around academia in a much different way. And it was just very interesting to watch all of that happen. And for me, be able to kind of put into context for people, like what really was going on here. And it was in that time that I also learned a lot about like what the interpersonal relationships are between like a hit football coach and the players and how much access there actually is and how much they actually know and see. I remember one big thing people brought up was they said, how could Butch Davis and the coaches not know that Robert Quinn was wearing black diamond earrings? Easy. He doesn't practice in those, you know, like, and you, you know, you start thinking about like how all that stuff goes. And that for me was a really illustrative time in getting, you know, just how this machine works and what can happen to players on the back end of it. Yeah, mm -hmm. we were we were co-learning along with you. <laughs> we, we had just come out of the NFL and thought, oh, we're going to a place where there's a higher purpose to what we're doing. And and it was a rude awakening. I mean, we were really, really naive. You know, we just were like it was a steep learning curve and a, and a rude awakening for us, but we're grateful for it because it really um, awakened our voice um, and our sense of like, this is, we're not going to be a part of this anymore. I just can't, we can't, we can't be quiet about it. So. And, and remember that's supposed to be the good guys. Like in the yeah. grand scheme of talking about programs, we could find worse stories at other places. That's you know? why we were there. It's interesting. When I was leaving the NFL, I was asked to interview at a number of different places, including LSU, Alabama, where Nick was just going. And many of my colleagues were like, why are you going to North Carolina? And I really felt like I'm going there because it feels good to me. There, there were some reasons they'd never been good on offense, and I wanted to see if we could do that. Right. But I also was like, it, it actually feels good. I think I'm going to a place that stands for what's right in college football. We thought football. players would get a great education. And I was and, kind of seduced yeah. by the same uh, We bought the whole thing. Yeah. Everybody else was. <laughs> we bought it all, hook, line, and sinker, yeah. But I, I'm interested, you know, Throughout the last decade, there's been people, when I'm trying to formulate my opinion, Bomani, you really have been one of the people that I'll go to your Twitter account or I'll listen to you on the radio that helps me think about things and helps me formulate my own opinion because I value your opinion. And I, I know that. that you've done that research. In reading this article now, you, I, I felt like I kind of got hit in the chest you know, you talked about the illusion that, of power that players have. And my last year of coaching football was in 2015, and I was at Purdue. And this is when everything is going on at Missouri, that you mentioned a little bit at Missouri. And quickly, the players at Missouri, the football team at Missouri, had a moderate protest. Well, there was a, there was a graduate student at Missouri on who was strike. on a hunger strike who was approaching death protesting issues of race on the campus. Nobody batted an eye. The individuals approaching death. 
all of a sudden the football team says, we are not going to play in our football game this weekend at Arrowhead Stadium against BYU. And within 48 hours, the president is ousted from the campus and everything changes. And at that point, I really thought to myself, players have so much power. Players have so much power. And in fact, it was even at uh, Purdue, uh, when everybody was putting pictures of their players saying that they stood with Missouri, we were at Northwestern and I posed for a picture with football players on our team from Purdue saying that we stood for uh, uh, with, stood the, with, the, with players. the players at Missouri. And that night when we got home from Chicago, uh, Stacy Clardy, uh, a news reporter from the town, called Marsha at our home and says, I'm so sorry, Morgan Burke, the AD, has told um, me. She said, I so, I'm so sorry to hear John's not going to be back next year. And I said, well, <laughs> that's not something we've been told. And, so, and she said, oh, well, he's, he's gone. He's not going to be back. And so I went into the office the very next day and was like, What's, why is this lady? Oh, that's not true, Shoop. I don't know where that came from. Lo and behold, I was fired at the end of the year. And she told me that night. And so I always wrestled to, with, do players really have power or not? And you talked about the illusion of power and that, you know, Kylan Hill is a running back at Mississippi State, who this year went on social media and said, uh, I'm not going to play for Mississippi State if we don't alter this flag. The in state the state, of Mississippi, this, yeah. Yeah, well, Mississippi State and the state if we right. don't alter the flag. And you, could you walk us through your argument that, in one hand, it looks like players have a degree of, of power, and, and maybe they do a degree, but it's also a, an illusion, kind of a veneer that they're allowed to do this, but really, we're securing that. Could you walk us through kind of that couple paragraphs? It's a powerful couple of paragraphs, oh, yeah. No, I appreciate it. And we can kind of start with Missouri because I didn't really have room in the piece to go more into that story. But I, I remember I talked to some players during that time as they were trying to figure out um, what it was that they were going to do and how perhaps – they could, as the larger student body was trying to extract assurances from the administration that athletes themselves could also do so, and they ultimately did not. And my understanding of, in part, as to why they ultimately did not was a very key detail in that Missouri story that doesn't come up much, which is Gary Pinkle took a picture, the head coach, took a picture with those players when they said they were not going to play in the game with, against BYU. Yeah. That week, I remember he did an interview on a radio station. I think it was in Kansas City, but it was on a you know major, you know, one of the largest cities that would care about Missouri football. And I've never heard an interview with a college football coach on a local affiliate like that ever before in my life. And it was basically they were basically asking him over and over again, "So what side you on?" Like that's just how it felt at every question. Do you think this? What do you? You know, there was very strident about his views about the campus movement, and not nearly, not much at all about him working with his players or standing with his players. Because, look, the head coach at that point, he had no other option. Like, if he decides that he's not standing with the players right then, he might as well have walked that day because you don't have a football team anymore. And maybe he should have walked that day because at the end of the season, Gary Pinkle announced that he was not going to be coming back to coach. Yeah. Um, it was for health reasons, um, as declared at the time. 
I would just like to know it's five years later and Gary Pinkle is still kicking. I haven't heard anything about any particular struggles <laughs> or anything like that. But Gary Pinkle is still out here, still going. Best football coach they ever had. And yeah. it ended, like, with very little fanfare You're right exactly then and there. Right. Right? right. And they haven't been good since. Like, it's also – that's also worth noting. They have not been good since. And so what that got me to thinking about, really, is the idea that we talk about the power that players have, but it normally requires them to put so much at risk. And power doesn't have to assume risk when they're trying to make things happen. And so if all the guys get together, if they all band together, then they can make something happen. And if everybody involved is willing to take this risk, then maybe you can make something happen. But for it to require that much makes you re like, I think, rethink the idea of power. So like one thing I said in the Vanity Fair piece was about the players at the University of Texas who said that they would not participate in recruiting activities and the likes um, if they did not see some changes on campus. And they had a whole list of things that they wanted and they got a lot of them, but none of them were specifically related to being football players. Right. And so, Yes, you could look at that and say they had the power to change the larger campus community, but they knew within themselves that the line was at their very own existence. Yeah. And so with Kylan Hill, uh, with the Mississippi State flag, I saw so much after it happened and people were saying sports did this, sports did this over and over again. I'm like, sports did not do this. Um, I, and it was a charming story to say that sports did it, but one important thing to note was that uh, the most powerful politician in the state of Mississippi, the Speaker of the House, a man named Philip Gunn, since 2015, he had wanted that flag to come down. Um, the both flagship, I mean, the flagship institution of the state, uh, University of Mississippi and Mississippi State, their official stance since 2015 was that they wanted the flag to come down. Um, the SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey, after, you know, as things were changing around the world uh, after George Floyd, he put out a statement saying that, you know, the SEC would not be hosting championships in Mississippi until the flag came down. Never mind the fact that they don't really host championships in Mississippi, whatever. They said they were going to do that. And then immediately after, both schools said, well, you know, since 2015, we've wanted this thing to come down, right? Everybody jumped on board. And then at the end, this one player says, I'm tired, right? I won't represent this school playing under this flag anymore. And it was a courageous thing for him to do because at the time, polling was still in the majority in support of this flag, you know, with the Confederate uh, emblem on it. But I don't think he swung it. I think that he became part of the story and it made everybody feel good to say that sports has impacted this because it gives us like, it gives the work that we do a gravitas, right? It makes it seem more important if we're out here actually making the world a better place. Like we love to do that stuff, but Kylan Hill surrounded by the head coaches of all the major sports in the state of Mississippi and with um, the Speaker of the House basically on his side, the vote in the Mississippi legislature was something like 89 to 31. Like, it was an overwhelming vote. They don't love Kylan Hill that much. They don't think he's that important, right? Like, everything around, and who knows what we'll find out as to what financial interests are at play or whatever. I think that people just basically looked around and realized either we can take this flag down or they're going to take it down for us. Like, there's no, there's no way around it, whether it be a corporation or you just have unrest. It just wasn't worth the stress of doing it. Um, but that's not the power of the players. Mm -hmm. So what would have happened if Kylan Hill had said these things, but the, the school president was not on his side, but mm -hmm. the head coach was not on his side? What would have been the outcome that resulted then? We and so what it would have been. <laughs> so he was, yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of feel like he was already pushing something that might have been rolling downhill. It was. It was. It was. It was headed there. Now, like I said, we'll never know exactly who the people were that decided it, but 
one thing that was interesting about that move was that Greg Sankey put out that statement. Yeah. Nobody else was really talking about that flag on like a national level that one would think would require the SEC commissioner to make a statement out of it. And I don't know Greg Sankey personally. I just have never felt that the SEC was at the vanguard of social progressivism. No, no, they're not. The idea, yeah, yeah, like, like I just don't feel like he was the first guy to be like, look, I've had enough. We yeah. got to get this flag down. I just, I just don't think that's how that went. You know, I'm an I'm an ethicist, a theologian, a social theorist, or whatever. And I I think the most basic understanding of power is, you know, we all have power, which is the capacity to make an impact. You know, we we all have some modicum of it. It's diminished um, by formal structures, by context, by systems and biases, and all those things that that kind of play into the kind of impact power can have. I think one of the most compelling things that you unpack um, in, a, in a way that I haven't seen unpacked with such nuance is just um, what it means to you throw around that word power when it's around a system and a structure that really isn't being interrogated by these different examples, right? That if, if a player uses their power to say, I don't like our college president or whatever, but it's not really about the fact that I work for free. Right. <laughs> I put my body on the line every day. Um, I'm, I don't get to choose my classes. I, um, my whole life, you know, some schools now have surveillance chips put in, in, um, or surveillance apps used on players' phones so they know where they are at all times. Um, there's a certain degree to which that the power that they have to speak to something or to look for people to like look to, hey, what's so and so, the sports star at my college saying about this, is so um, conditional and so entrenched in this oppressive system that the risk, the risk built into just the very fact that they have that platform is, is withering. I mean, it is, there's a certain, it's like you don't even need violence to enforce that. It's so overarching. And I just wonder if you could speak a little bit to that. People don't understand that. They see players as like these entitled they get everything, powerful people, and if they just said this, then this could happen, and if they just came together, then this blah, blah, and it's like, no, that's really discounting the way formal structures of power can lower the boom <laughs> on personal power, like, you know, that kind of culture just eats personal power for breakfast every day. Yeah, so one thing that's interesting to me that I think is very particular to football, and I've been experiencing this in conversations I've been having with people around, you know, what's going on with the player movements right now is football does a great job of conveying to its players how disposable they are. And the truth is they don't even really have to try that hard to do it because it's so easy to see, right? Like dude breaks his leg on the field. We're going to move him over here. 
And now we're just going to keep going. Cause if you stop for something like that, you'd never get anything done. It's like, why is it that if it snows in Atlanta, it shuts down the freeway, but if it snows in Chicago, they just keep on going. Because <laughs> if they stopped every time it snowed in Chicago, no one would ever leave the house. They got to make do in a different sort of way. And so football players, more than anybody else, basketball players are very aware of how disposable they are not. Football players are very aware at every level, no matter who they are, of how disposable they are and how quickly one can be replaced. And for some players, like I, I try to be careful not to make this the plight of every player, but for some players, going home is not an option. You know, and I think that for people who grow up with a certain measure of privilege, like me, for example, I can't imagine the idea that if I were 18, 19 or whatever, something went wrong for me that I could not go back to my parents' house. You know, like that's, 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 that was just kind of a mind blowing situation. People like friends I had in high school who were just like 18 and high school degree means you're out. Either you're going to a dorm or you're going to an apartment or whatever it is, you've got to go. Some people can't go home. And that is a fuel that we talk about a lot in noble terms to explain like what motivates football players. Like I always kind of joke about it that, these different guys, I call them the CGB guys, can't go back, right? Like when you look at the way they play, you realize wherever it was that they were, they can't go back there. Like this is the place I am. This is the place I have to stay. And it can be funny in an application, but in reality, that's a omnipresent threat that players are under. The scholarships can be jerked from under them at any point and then send them into something that for a lot of them, they've worked their whole lives to make sure that they were never going to go back to. And there's a real fear of that for a lot of players. And so what that means is they'll sign up for just about anything you give them, you know, and they are also just moving out of childhood. So they don't even have a real grasp on what level of like privilege and in, in, in like an individual agency and liberty that they're supposed to have in the first place. Cause they, they have not, they're, they're not getting the college learning experience to learn from your mistakes and everything else that mm -hmm. everybody else gets. And so the thought is, well, they get this, they get that, but everything that college athletes get is in the grand scheme of the larger operation. Like there's really not a lot of surplus that they wind up receiving at most places, right? Like they're the schools where they'll make sure you got a car and all this other stuff, but not everybody's got that kind of budget to work with, right. um, you know, in, in the way they do things. And so I think that people also misunderstand because we're looking at such large um, people that these are like, I, I'm, I'm trying to avoid using the word kids, but if you work with like when you work with college students, it becomes very clear to you that these are not like they're adults in a very technical legal sort of sense. Um, but there's a there's a lot that they're going through and trying to figure out and a lot of guidance that they need and seek. Um, and it, it comes out like a lot. When you deal with when you deal with these guys and like that's what happened in these phone conversations with people, you know, not just the getting called sir. You know, and all of this stuff that's incredibly humbling. Um, like you just kind of like I, I just find myself talking to them and listening and just hearing it and just being like, no, man, these are these are young people. And they 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 can't just walk in and say this is what it's going to be. With the exception of the Miami Hurricanes from like 1989 to 1993, no players have ever walked in dictating what the state yeah. of affairs is going to be to a football coach. It's never happened. And. Bob Orr uh, and Devin Ramsey, both when I talked in that story, Bob Orr, former Supreme Court justice in North Carolina, and Devin Ramsey, a player in North Carolina, both made the same point that when it all hit the fan, they didn't have any advocates. There was nobody that they could trust to have their interests at heart if it came in conflict with the school. There's no 
no organization, there's no body, there's no people, there's nothing to have your back against the literal state. It's really interesting to me uh, when I was at Purdue, I can remember having a conversation with our head coach and our head coach used to use language of family, family all the time. And I said to him, you know, if, if we were a family and you have a relative who's, who's hurt, everybody else would slow down, make sure they're caught up with you. <laughs> and the pace is sometimes set by the weakest member of your family. You're not going to leave a family member behind. What we have here ain't anything like family. <laughs> the tempo set by the strong, and if you get injured, you you just disappear. As, as a coach, it's like you're here one day, you're gone the next. Coaches that are really savvy in college, they manipulate their roster more than Bill Polian did in the NFL. <laughs> it, it's really interesting. And sadly, when I look at it and I evaluate kind of my career – Bomani, I can remember actually in a meeting saying one of the things I liked about a player was he had no plan B. I knew that he was going to come here and there was no way this guy was going to fail because I, I actually used that language. And when I think about what you just said, you know, right now, that's something, again, you give me so much to think about so often but it kind of hits me right in the, in the chest. That was a, a bonus point. That, that, that helped the guy's rating for me and, and for people I was working with. Uh, you know, I wasn't right. the lone wolf on that. Well, you know, and the thing is, it's not necessarily sinister, right? Because I, yeah. like, I get the, like I get the, just generally speaking, right? Like if we take any connotation away from the idea, just the thought that this person is going to lock in entirely on what I'm going to do, I mean, you, you, you hold all things equal, that's going to be the more desirable candidate for, like, for a sort of position. Where I worry is um, Gary Patterson at TCU, who is a very interesting case as a football coach, because everyone agrees that he is a brilliant football coach, and everyone agrees that he's a jerk. Like, there's just no, like, there's, like, even if you like Gary Patterson, that's what Gary Patterson is. Now, Gary Patterson, to me, is an interesting case, because one of the the keys to his success is not simply talent evaluation, but being able to evaluate talent who, you know, once they get those three square meals for the first time in their lives, wait till you see what's going to happen to their bodies. Cause that's a skill in college football is being able to identify undernourished players. Um, and again, not necessarily sinister. It's a market inefficiency. Like it totally understand how it goes. But Pinkle got in trouble a couple of weeks ago because he had repeated the N-word while talking to his players. He did not call the player an N-word, but he repeated it. And, of course, that was the big headline. But the other thing he said to the player was that he threatened him and said, I'll send you back to Pitt. This guy's from Pittsburgh, Kansas, or I, I think it's the Pittsburgh or Pittsburgh State is. And he threatened to send him back there. That was what came out in the stories in Iowa and at Oklahoma State, the I'll send you back there. And that's when this gets to be cruel is when you are wielding this over yeah. somebody's head and saying, you know, and who knows what's in that place for some of those people, you know, like not everybody had the family I had, you know, all these things, like who knows exactly what that is. 
And the idea that someone can threaten you with sending you somewhere is a whole nother ball game that comes up. And a lot of coaches really do use that as a, you know, they motivating people. I think we have to remember that they're like, you know, 140 something division one programs. And that means that you have literal thousands of coaches. There aren't like thousands of people that are good at motivating, right? Like this is a very nuanced and tricky skill. And so people don't possess it. And then they just go down to like common denominator type stuff. And then they go from there. Jimmy Johnson said, you know, coach in Miami. And that's a guy who I believe absolutely believed and cared about his players while they were there. But he always said his number one motivating factor was fear. Yeah. Well, and that is a way that power is abused. And again, I use that word kind of withering, you know, that has a withering impact when you, when you bring the power analysis of, these are young folks. They need, you know, they're just learning. They're looking for people to trust. It's a context in which they don't have formal power and they don't have a lot of options. Those are all just circumstances that are ripe for abuse of power and way too many people with formal power don't even realize that they're abusing their power when they say something like that because they haven't really yeah, they haven't really been taught to look at systems of power and the way they they take up space in those systems. I thought it was really important when you talked in the article uh, about how athletes from our past, whether it's, you know, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and the great example is Muhammad Ali, are kind of retrofitted in history to fit this narrative that feels good to us now. And we're living now in a day and age where I, I'm, I happen to be one of the biggest LeBron James fans alive and think he's a great player. I also happen to think basketball might be the second most important thing we remember LeBron James for at the end of his life. And so how has the evolution of, I mean, I think LeBron James today in 2020 is a social justice warrior. I, I really do. I think Muhammad Ali probably was too in his seventies when I was just a tadpole. Could you talk about how that evolution of those warriors has been? And, and I just thought it was on point how you talked about we're kind of retrofitting history to feel good about these guys in the past when really at the time they were beat up from the feet up like, you know, a lot of people. Yeah. So Ali and LeBron, I've been talking a lot about that this week and I've had people misunderstand where they think I'm being critical of LeBron, but I'm the, the point that I make about LeBron at this point, cause I think he's done a lot of great work, but he's also like 35 years old. Now the Ali that set the world on fire was 23, 22, 23, 24 in that time. Like people of that age fight in a different way. Like you think about it, Dr. King led the boy, bus boycott in Montgomery at 26 Mm-hmm. At 37, he's walking with Stokely Carmichael and trying to hold Stokely Carmichael, not hold him back, but Stokely Carmichael was the fire at that point. Mm-hmm. And King is trying to figure out how to direct it and guide it, you know, and get it into um, the right direction. So LeBron's in this very interesting place right now where he has so much money and so much power that he could do things that somebody like Muhammad Ali, it was never an option. Like, like guys now host fundraisers for the Democratic Party, for example. Like you don't hear so much about it. But, you know, they're at that level of money now where they can and power where they can do that sort of thing. Right. So it's very interesting to me that these guys now are able to do things through institutions where a guy like Ali would have to do it from outside the institution. Now, there's a value in doing it from the outside, outside the institution, because you're more likely to give it like a heavy critique of what it was. But the thing with Ali, I always make the point of is that 
public sentiment about the Vietnam War changed. And when public sentiment about the Vietnam War changed, it required a reassessment of like Jane Fonda, for example, like all these people who were vehemently opposed to the Vietnam War at the time were ultimately vindicated. And so we then had to make those people heroes because they were right about what people ultimately felt, but without really a, a, a sincere reckoning with how those people were treated at the time. And so what we do, this is something we do as sports writers also. And so if we, like we did it with LeBron James, couldn't win, couldn't win the big one, couldn't win the big one, couldn't win the big one. And then when he won it, you know, all those times he couldn't win the big one, that's what made him the man he was when he ultimately <laughs> got it, right? So we were right at the time, we were really just trying to help, right? We were really just trying to push them all into the future. And that's kind of what we do with these figures that we're discussing here, like Muhammad Ali, is that now he is a hero for the stance that he took. And he is a hero for deciding to not go to the war. But I feel like if somebody, you know, we don't have a draft now, obviously, but if we had a person who said, I am opposed to fighting in the war of Afghanistan for the same reasons Ali said he wasn't going to Vietnam, I don't think we're going to treat that person like a hero. I, I, you know, I, I don't think that that's going to happen. But we had to go back because we, it's very difficult for this country. Like, I think Nazi Germany is a comparison that people make. And, of course, the Nazi, Nazi example is so extreme. But it is a clear example of a country saying, hey, we were wrong. You know, and since we were wrong, we're going to have to do all these things to account for the fact that we were wrong. But make no mistake, we were wrong. We can't do that here. Like this, this country has made the decision that we were wrong. It's just, it's just not something that we're going to do. So instead of saying we were wrong, we got to say, man, that guy was right. And they leave it at that. That's very, very insightful. Very insightful. I was just, I was just in a workshop the last couple of days this um, week about, you know, being a change maker in institutions around white supremacy and just the culture of um, white supremacy. And one of the um, facilitators um, was sharing something from a book. I can't even remember where, where the citation was from, but. She, she said, you almost have to laugh that there's literature that suggests that Nazi Germany looked at some of the kind of prototypes of the way the United States did chattel slavery and the genocide of um, First Nation people and, you know, just all the horrible things <laughs> that are in our history. And they decided collectively that the United States had gone too far. That was Nazi Germany, so um, that, I think that's pretty bad, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I, I actually, I would love to have been in that room because there had to be somebody that was in that room. Like, wait a minute, but like, like somebody's head was spinning upon this realization. That's pretty bad. You, you got that's Nazi Germany saying, "Pump the brakes." Yeah, let's, hey, let's yeah. play this a little. Yeah. Bit. We don't yeah, want to. And don't get me wrong, I don't feel like they got the moral high ground to do this, right? No, but just no, the fact no. that anybody could ever like fold their lips 
And it, it, in that place, just be like, yo, this is what we're going to do. But that was another important factor in discussing the civil rights movement is yeah. it became difficult to fight the Cold War on a moral position mm -hmm. with widespread segregation in the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, again, we wind up with it's so great that now these people can vote. And we really try to avoid, but man, we sure let this happen for a long time. Yeah, yeah, and and it's great that we have that de jure, you know, like open, you know, the polls are are open, but let's do all this other stuff to make sure they don't really vote, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so that is a good segue into the final question. This can kind of take us take us to the house here on the on our conversation, but let's just hone in on this on this present moment which for me and i know i'm sure for you and john too like we've been having this conversation for decades we've been doing this work for a long time john and i, I think maybe a decade or more more than you i don't know <laughs> i think you're a little bit younger than us but the the amount of amplification that we're experiencing right now in our culture around issues of white supremacy and, um, and racism. There's something different happening today, whether it be just the magnitude of it or the way we're able to talk about it. There's some kind of difference about the way it is today. How would you categorize that? And is there any place to kind of be able to read the tea leaves of how people like a LeBron James or, um, you know, college athletes saying, why am I here on this campus when everybody else doesn't have to come to campus or whatever. Is there a way that there's, there's, a, there's a tipping point that we've gone over now and that it's kind of like the, the player you talked about in Mississippi. He wasn't the thing that made the difference, but he was one more thing that, you know, kind of the momentum was going, are we there? Is it, is there something happening that that gives you a new kind of hope or a new kind of sense of a new horizon for our country around these issues? Yeah, there is. Um, I know I really felt it in June. Like immediately after George Floyd, I saw a reaction from the country and a reaction from like the money class that was unlike anything. Like this will give you a little indication of the responsiveness that like the corporate class began to take. I was on Twitter one day and I was just simply making a point that some people are putting out, you know, some companies are putting out black lives matter statements. This is around the Drew Brees thing. And I was like, but for some other people, not really, you know, and I don't necessarily judge them for it because for some of those people that has nothing to do with the base and the money they make. And I said, I was like, I was after the Drew Brees thing. I said, I went to go check the Wrangler Twitter account and I said, LOL, of course there's no Black Lives Matter statement. I was not expecting Wrangler jeans to put out a Black Lives Matter statement. The very next day, they tweeted out a Black Lives Matter statement from Wrangler, Wrangler jeans. That's why I was like, oh, oh, okay, something is happening here. You know, like uh, the football team in Washington changed their name under no more pressure than they had ever been under before. Um, and they did that. Like, I there definitely seems to be something going on where people are pushing socially and from, again, from a position of financial power, socially pushing away from some of the directions that people have veered in the last three, four years. Like, I think that's, that's actually happening. And I have seen in individual people 
some thoughts and some like reckoning and reconsideration that I had not seen before. I think part of it is COVID has got people shut into their houses and I think put people more in touch with some different things. Um, but I do, I do kind of see that. And I, at, in the Vanity Fair piece, I raised the question. I was like, I don't know what 1968 felt like, but I imagine it had to be something similar to this. But the difference between 1968 and now is that there was an election in 1968. But like the way that we think of Richard Nixon now is not exactly the same as the way you think of Richard, as they thought of him in 1968. Like there's no Watergate yet. Trump is a different situation. Like, like the, the result of this election is going to feel like a referendum in a much different way than I imagine it felt in 1968. Because like, and like maybe if it was Barry Goldwater running in 68, I could give you like some rep, you know, replication of the idea, but that wasn't it. And so with that election coming, I have no idea what's going to happen after that because neither side is going to be particularly pleased if they lose. And I don't know if either side is just going to be like, oh, you got me, fair and square, and then, you know, keep it moving. And I think that we're going to learn a lot about the direction of everything at that point. But I think that there is a conscious feeling and sentiment toward making things change that I don't recall seeing before. Like, you could just say it's the NBA or whatever, but having Black Lives Matter on the floor and like the names on the jerseys, which I think is a little empty, but I don't knock them for trying. Like seeing them, that league that has always tried so hard not to seem too black, seeing them say, no, this is what it is. This is what we got to do. The NFL saying that they're going to put in racism down on the field and every, you know, and all these things that they have done at the very least, it has become impolite to do this stuff. If nothing else, but that is it. Like that's a stride. That's a move. I was talking to um, my buddy Michael Smith yesterday, and he was saying that. And I've seen some other people make this point that they feel like the phrase "Black Lives Matter" has been gentrified, and that you know they're like the corporations have taken it. You know, it's like it doesn't mean anything. I was like, yeah, but it still means something. It means something that it doesn't mean anything. Like it mm -hmm. means something that we're at a point that they would even get to a place of like, okay, well, we got to claim this or whatever. Like it's still being projected. These PSAs are still going out and the world isn't on fire as a result. You know, the ratings for the NBA, they struggled to start because I was, I just don't think people were in a rhythm of watching basketball. Now they're getting good numbers on the games. Like all this, none of this imaging, I've always thought that people were just far too afraid of scaring the white people. And I think white people are a lot tougher than they get credit for. If you push past that initial discomfort, they can handle it. Like I really believe that they can. And I think that people are pushing a little harder just to get people to sit and listen and more people are willing to listen than I can recall. I would agree with you, Bomani, and I'm somebody who spends a lot of time in white spaces. And, you know, I've been somebody who's pushing this conversation in white spaces for years, and something is different. Something is different for white people. A lot of white people are really willing to look at themselves, and I include myself in that, um, and the systems and structures that have made us successful and competent and um, you know, acceptable and professional and all of those things um, with a different malleability, with a different non-defensiveness that really gives me a lot of hope. Um, and I'm, I'm just so grateful. We are so grateful for you and the work that you do um, in the world, just the way you take up space in the world. Um, I'm grateful for this conversation. It was fascinating. I hope we can like have you back sometime sure. <laughs> on going deep um, to talk more because 
goodness knows we'll be having this time next year. <laughs> Lord only knows what we'll be doing then. Well, whenever, you, whenever you need me, I am more than willing and available. I appreciate you having me on. Well, be careful. I'm one of those guys that could bend you here for the next three hours. I really do value what you have to say. And yes. Uh, Thank you. No, I, I, I greatly appreciate it. And like I say, I, I remember when we did that panel, I was like, wow, this, she is impressive. Like, it was, it was, it was like, I was like, I didn't think this was going to go in this direction at all. I didn't. I was like, I did not know. But I was like, all right, let's keep on going. No, yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember you coming up to me after and you're like, Wow. Okay. Okay. Let's let's talk. Like, tell me who you are. Like, <laughs> no, that was like, like I say. It was. It was. I'm great. I'm glad that I was able to make the acquaintance. I'm glad I was able to do this today. And if you guys need anything else from me, please just let me know. Thank you, Bomani. And I, I remember that day feeling a real, just a real gratitude for you, um, and just so glad to have the connection. Um, so blessings to you and all that you do. And I hope our listeners will go and read that Vanity Fair article. It is strong and it is nuanced and it has just so much to offer this conversation. So, um, Bomani, blessings to you. And um, we hope you'll be back on Going Deep before too long. All right. Thank you, guys. You have a good one. fantastic conversation with our friend Bomani. It makes me reflect and want to go back and listen uh, to a show where we talked with Kevin Blackstone a couple of years ago in November of 2017 on the history of black athlete protests. It also makes me want to go back and listen to Kevin in 2019 uh, talking about the Kaepernick settlement. But the history of those black athlete protests, when we were talking about the University of Missouri football team or Muhammad Ali, and today uh, people like LeBron James, really uh, was fascinating, isn't it? And is a takeaway uh, that... I'm going to have after this conversation with uh, uh, Bomani. Yeah, I think if if listeners can go back and listen to that show with Kevin, well, actually both of those shows with Kevin, um, in conversation with this show with Bomani, I think we start to dip into the complexity of what it means for um, for athletes to be activists and 
The interesting thing to me is, is that both Bomani and Kevin want to really disrupt any kind of facile or overly simplified idea of personal power, because you always have to take into account systemic power. You have to, you, personal power doesn't occur in a vacuum. And that's an especially important piece to, to lay alongside collegiate athletes. Um, sure, they have power and sure that's been shown, but it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's, they are a part of a system that adversely impacts their power and constrains their ability to um, have the same kind of agency in those situations that they could have in other contexts where they might ha be more of a full stakeholder and, and have a voice at the table, at the decision-making table. Um, in revenue sports and in colleges, that's not the case. Um, not only do they not have a seat at the table, but there are all kinds of tools at the disposal of the system to silence them, exclude them, ruin their life, you know, they, they've got another person coming where that person came from. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that both Bomani and Kevin do a really good job of putting that in a historical and social cultural context. Um, we should get them on the show together sometime. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. I could have listened to, uh, Bomani for another two or three hours. Well, in fact, I often do on his radio show. We're really lucky to have friends like Bomani and Kevin to help us process all of this. And we're really grateful for everybody in the BPR community that joins us each week on Going Deep. Yes, and I hope you'll join us next time. Um, well, we'll continue to go deep on all these pressing issues. There's so many things to talk about today. It's a, it's a good day to, it's a good time to be a radio show co-hosts about sports and culture, isn't it? Amen. <laughs> yeah. See you next time. been listening to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century, from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep. Going Deep.